0: Gerry Whelan, you're an Irish Jesuit back from Rome on holidays to Ireland and you yourself are lecturing in the Greg in Rome. You're the Professor of Fundamental Theology. Working at the moment, writing a book on Pope Francis. Tell me about that.
1: I'm writing a book about Pope Francis and Bernard Lonergan. Uh, which confuses everybody because it seems that Pope Francis never read Bernard Lonergan, uh, this philosopher-theologian that I I, uh, focus on in my my own studies and teaching. But the the reason is to try to give support at a deep academic level to the project of Pope Francis. Uh, If I can share an image with you, um, a book publisher in the States uh, that uh, is going to publish my book, I believe, said that Fairly soon after the um, election of Pope Francis, Cardinal Casper spoke to Catholic book publishers saying, look, there's trouble ahead. This Pope is uh, so different that he's going to be criticised, not least by academic right-wing people. So it is incumbent on theologians that agree with Pope Francis, if if I might use the term more progressive theologians, to Uh, Pick up the slack, so to speak, to to give an academic defence of what Pope Francis is arguing for more pastorally and and more directly. So that's part of what I'm trying to do in this book.
0: And so, are you giving a a theological sound basis to what Pope Francis is doing in a pastoral way? But he, he seems to know what he's about. Yeah. nonetheless I mean he's not stupid
1: that's right so we don't want to dismiss him as being merely pastoral and uh, even if we're writing a sympathetic academic support for him because that's one of the ways of rejecting Pope Francis so it's true It's he's very informed theologically and comes from a an even more specialised a tradition in Argentina that, that he bought into of a version of liberation theology, a version of how to receive Vatican II in Latin America. But he was never a professional academic, and the two popes that preceded him were and they lasted for 35 years. So it, that, that's another aspect of what is so new with Pope Francis. It's it, it's more normal in the history of the papacy, uh, but it's new for those of us who have lived through those years. So to try to uh, provide an academic defence of, of what, what he's doing.
0: Because he is being criticised by the... These terminologies, but the conservative right or the more traditionalists, where some of them in the the blogs that they write, it's like they feel he's abandoned official church doctrine, and um, they're saying things like, you know, we shouldn't really. He has no real authority and you take some things and if they fit with tradition, then you accept them and the rest, as one blogger put it, you would give no more weight to it than you would to your daughtery uncle. Now, that's the level that we're getting to. So he does need the support. What would you say to bloggers like that and to people who are launching a fairly sustained attack since he's taken up his his role as Pope?
1: Well, in a sense, my book is written to neutral third parties uh, because there's very little you could ever say to such bloggers uh, that would persuade them. And that comes into my book, actually, to try to understand this phenomenon of opposition, uh, the psychology of it, the academic background to it is fascinating. The, it might sound a bit off topic, but I'm convinced that exactly this kind of temperature of debate occurred during Vatican II it's we're revisiting Vatican II in a strange way Uh, the uh, so it's a certain mentality uh, central to my book is this notion that comes from Lonergan that the key challenge in theology today is a transition from classical mindedness to historical consciousness so a classically minded person is somebody who thinks in an abstract form Uh, It's all concepts. The Catholic faith, the Christian faith has been worked out very nicely. And we have a formula that we can apply, so to speak, from a catechism to any given case uh, in the world uh, where we know what to do. Um, That's the classical mindedness. And uh, it basically got defeated in Vatican II, but it kept up a robust defence in a minority role. The debates in Vatican II were remarkably similar uh, as the the blogs um, today. It's just that they lost those debates and the the documents of Vatican II nearly always went in a different direction that I call historical consciousness. Um, Gaudium et spes, the Church in the Modern World, is the great example of this, but it, it is in continuity with all the other documents. It's difficult to explain what is historical consciousness. It's a question of not going for abstract systems but rather recognizing that we're in process and that there's a whole question of how change occurs in even in how we understand the truth of Jesus Christ change occurs in society Uh, there's this phenomenon of culture that we create and so the meanings in our culture evolve and so theology must evolve with that culture now to somebody who uh, is a classicist that seems like pure relativism. Mm. There seems like no hope to retain objectivity, doctrine, truth in that. I would say, on the other hand, that's partly true. There is a great deal of relativism that goes in this historically conscious philosophy, which is the postmodern culture that we're in. However, certainly I would appeal to Bernard Lonergan and say, there is also a way, however, to handle this authentically and to retain a notion of objectivity that emerges in the process and that is isn't dependent on these abstract, absolute systems.
0: I know it's a huge debate and we haven't time to get into it now, but I do think the key word there is historical consciousness because what it is saying is that even a cursory glance back at church history would to some extent raise questions about there being any such thing as just a pure museum-like body of tradition that has never changed and through which as a filter we must put every single development. So I think it's very interesting what what you're doing. The the sense we get from Rome is sometimes in the media is that the Pope is facing a lot of opposition from within. Let's leave the bloggers to one side. Is that True. I mean, we've had the Dubia and, you know, the, the cardinals who've come out very frankly and spoken out. Is tension increasing there?
1: I would not say that it's increasing, but that's not necessarily good news uh, because it was always strong from the beginning of the pontificate of Pope Francis and he was under no um, delusion about that. Just to say, I'm towards the end of my book, my manuscript at the moment, so I'm immersed in the biography of Pope Francis, uh, especially leading up to his uh, election as Pope. He himself, as Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, was in intense conflict, really, with members of the Curia who were trying to interfere in the workings of his diocese, let alone in the um, Episcopal Conference of all Latin America. So he has a long history of recognising that there is this kind of opposition. Before he was elected, just a few years, the bishops of of Latin America came together in a big assembly called Aparecida in 2007. And they staged a quiet rebellion, frankly, against the era of John Paul II, when this sort of control from the Curia had full approval. So they reasserted themselves. But just after the Aparacita, he started to get worried, Archbishop Bergoglio, that this Curia was still so centralising, they were going to try to reverse that recent um, initiative in, in Latin America. So he never thought he would be... Uh, pope. he thought he was too old but he was interested in a Latin American Pope uh, somebody, somebody else but he was very much feeling that the, there's a danger even for Latin America being allowed go in its own direction unless there is a kind of root and branch reform in the Curia so he came then he was surprised and, and felt consoled and able to accept to be Pope but he came in with a rather clear agenda of reform and the familiarity with the details of what needed reforming. So he went straight into a certain kind of gentle conflict, I would say. He's, he's subtle in his uh, ways, but we're talking about 35 years of curial habit forming and 35 years of bishops' appointments around the world that, that were directly expected to, to agree with this. So he's been in a job of reform and i don't see conflict getting worse now that really than in many ways that it was at least more perhaps in a hidden way from the beginning
0: and he did wait for a good few years before he replaced Mueller. just thinking about your, your work and your book and, and those experiences of course he's coming over here to ireland as well um and next year for the the world meeting of families what's your take on that
1: Well, uh, just some hesitations that I've lived out of Ireland for so long that I'm cautious about uh, saying anything. But I did catch uh, an interview that um, Archbishop Diarmuid Martin gave on the radio about uh, how this visit was initiated. As I understand it, Archbishop Dermot got a phone call out of the blue from Pope Francis saying, I hear you're having this conference on the, on the family. Could I come? So he was shocked. I think he even said he was obliged to keep quiet about it when the Episcopal Conference in Ireland was meeting for a short time. He was a bit embarrassed because just this, this direct manner of Pope Francis is amazing. But as I understand it, it was a pointed request for a pointed kind of visit. Pope Francis knows no fear. Um, he goes into challenging difficult situations and as I understand it he recognized that this family congress is at the same time more or less as an abortion referendum so Pope Francis wanted to come to try to influence Irish public opinion I think uh, on a more pro-life direction so that's that's the first um, kind of pointed description that I would have mm-hmm. of, of the Pope's visit.
0: So he's not shy about making his mark if he feels he, he wants to do that. And yet one also gets the sense of the way that he might do it, given the tone of, say, Amoris laetitia, the joy of love, that there, which has got him into trouble with the dubia. That sensitivity around people who are divorced and remarried, a sensitivity around the experience of people as, as individuals and in a particular culture and place as well.
1: Yes, quite right. Well, to move back a little bit to this question of the conservative uh, reaction, perhaps I could almost qualify what I was saying about uh, tension not having increased. Uh, Maybe it has increased after Amoris Laetitia because it becomes a focus for the right-wing opposition. It is, for me, exactly an example of this shift from classicist uh, thinking to historically conscious thinking in the area of what we call moral theology, therefore sexuality-marriage. It is Indeed the case that he is very much emphasising the pastoral realities of being just attentive to the reality on the ground and seeing what one step you can offer to help things improve. This is as opposed, I exaggerate, but as opposed to throwing the book at people, throwing the catechism of the Catholic Church at people and, and disempowering people because they just don't feel they can ever get there without necessarily disagreeing even with the church. They just know that they're not there and they feel rejected. So his entire pastoral approach is different in the area of moral theology. And people get that. They recognise a compassionate listening. They recognise that they can be truly living in grace and working to improve while in an imperfect situation. They know Pope Francis knows that, and this is the great response that people have to Pope Francis. So, the right wing are not happy with Pope Francis in that respect. As I said, they consider that relativism, throwing all doctrine out to the winds. Something I have in mind, however, is that perhaps an Irish audience needs to recognise that Pope Francis is still relatively conservative in doctrine, and that uh, there's a subtle point to be grasped here, that he's, he's compassionate in process, uh, but he is inviting people to eventually try to live up to a certain ideal that the Catholic Church is trying to explain, try, trying to render meaningful. And it can seem hard and it can seem to go against what the culture is increasingly accepting as normal. So in that sense, uh, there is something provocative about uh, the, what, what Pope Francis has to say, I, I believe. And I, I hope that the Irish people can hear that that, that, that there can be an intelligent listening in two directions when he comes.
0: And he's certainly not shy about standing his ground. I mean, we saw that when he went to America for the, the World Meeting of Families there. He had a position and he, he managed that very well, didn't he?
1: Yes, uh, they say that um, the basically he took great care to manage his own agenda uh, in, in regards to what got communicated to the public in the States. And his agenda was not identical with the family congress he was going to there, that it was organised in the John Paul II, Pope Benedict mode, you might say, with a strong emphasis on... Good aspects of the doctrine that that all Catholics agree with, but uh, terribly well stated in a classicist way, in a sort of absolute way that is terribly narrow in focus. So the anti-abortion, um, contraception issues, this what they call religious freedom in some of the legislation in, in the states. So it's not for a moment that Pope Francis was against that, but it was just starting in the wrong way. There really is a shift in pastoral style that he represents. So. He was technically invited to attend that family congress, but he didn't actually attend much of it. He rather made it a sort of a launching pad for a visit where he preached his message of family values and other values. We remember the migration issue, for example, in his own way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that was really important because he also addressed the two houses as well, didn't he? And that's, I think, what some people find refreshing, that the focus that he has is not a gnarly moral theology, sexuality focus, but that if you're going to talk about family and values, then you talk about migrant families, then you talk about liberal capitalism that leaves people with no health service and very little uh, safety nets. And I think in that regard, There's a more holistic sense about where he comes from and what his values are and his huge emphasis then on the power of mercy as well. So I think the sense that people have is of a much more rounded, integrated reflection. Even if he does need help with the theological underpinning, he certainly
1: knows his gospel. Yeah, absolutely. What can I add? Just to say, he was like that long before he was a Pope. If I may briefly uh, Point to his biography when he was a Jesuit he was uh, as provincial and then as, as a person of responsibility in the province afterwards he was very worried about um, a wrong way of approaching an option for the poor that tended to be Marxist so in those years his, uh, he, he was more worried about a left-wing error mm-hmm. in, in pastoral practice because that's the way the Jesuits were uh, frankly uh, at that time now he was then appointed a Pope and it's a misinterpretation that some people make of him to say he switched from being very right-wing to being very left-wing. It's, it's just this centrist vision that he had, had found a new opponent, you might say, or a new problem. He was now a national figure in Argentina, and there was an extreme neoliberal uh, economics set of policies being applied by a government that, that was like that. So he became a great opponent of neoliberalism. Uh, very convinced that after the fall of the of the Berlin Wall, the real problem was this uh, savage capitalism. Uh, in this respect, he was in agreement with um, Pope uh, John Paul. Uh, so just as you describe, he was articulating this very strongly. But by the way, he had, this is all in my book, but two opponents as bishop and archbishop. First was neoliberalism, and then this kind of neo-Augustinianism, I call it, for a reason I won't go into. But this approach within the church towards governance, which was this abstract centralising approach. So just as you say, he's just a person who responds to context with the core of, of a method, above all, and a set of theological beliefs. And he is very alert to the um, the problems of a culture that make the preaching of the word of the Christian gospel very difficult.
0: Finally, Gerry your own book is coming out about a year from now. a year from now just in terms of you see the Pope I presume from time to time he's going into his 80s isn't that right he'll be 36 yeah so how's the health bearing up it's a grueling schedule of travel and you know the the level they're operating on and the, the international disasters and things like that what's your sense around him is he bearing up well.
1: I believe he is, yes. I I used to hear more worries about him at the beginning, 2013, 2014. We were getting used to him. He just has one lung. He tends to catch cold, even have a mild fever, sort of bronchitis or something sometimes. But I don't hear anything about a decline in him. And time counts. Time is very important for Pope Francis, I think. I, I believe that he is consistent in his policies. But frankly, with each passing year, he has more appointments uh, that he can make uh, of people who understand him. And also he has more time to persuade a kind of shifting middle amongst bishops, especially.
0: Okay, thank you very much indeed. And we look forward to interviewing you when you return with your book ready and published.
1: Thank you.